This week on the Nonprofit News Feed for the week of December 20th, we're talking about nonprofit jobs, about the Log4 vulnerability, and a ton of other updates. Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. How are you? This is our last podcast of 2021. Huzzah, last of 2021. And we'll have, of course, more news for you in the new year. But for now, let's get into what we are seeing from nonprofit news out there, Nick. Sure. So our first story is following up on many previous stories, but this is about how nonprofit jobs have slowed in terms of growth um, looking at November data. So this data comes from the Center for Civil Society Studies, CCSS at Johns Hopkins University. It was reported out by the Nonprofit Times. And the headline here is that nonprofit job growth slowed in November. However, the caveat in this is that uh, the job growth itself is slowing because we are slowly approaching pre-pandemic employment. Um, So nonprofits lost a ton of jobs in 2020 at the onset of the pandemic. But according to this reporting, the sectors recovered nearly 70% of those lost jobs. Um, So if we look at the initial lost jobs of 1.64 million, which is tremendous and devastating, um, there remain about 485,000 missing jobs. Uh, That's still a large percentage there, but the recovery is certainly on the upward trend and we could potentially be returning to full employment in the near future. Um, I will highlight that certain sectors are performing better than others. Um, I believe civil society organizations generally are uh, up. Um, So those are social service organizations. Those are advocacy organizations. Those are the closest to full employment. But it looks like nonprofit arts and entertainment organizations have seen the slowest recovery, perhaps predictably. um, And they are still down 13% of their jobs compared to before the pandemic. Um, So some interesting numbers. We, of course, want this to regain full employment. We want to be at full employment um, as quickly as possible, but uh, kind of a mixed set of numbers here, um, but something that hopefully over time will resolve. Yeah, it's going to be a slow climb back for sure with the Omicron also factoring in now with questions of how do we go back to uh, certain IRL services certainly arts organizations, people in person, and, you know, what the the next year of unpredictable pandemic downstream impacts have. What's also interesting, and we'll touch on it in some of the upcoming news pieces, is uh, a counter narrative to this of some of the difficulty in hiring for certain positions. So you have this, like, not as many certain nonprofit jobs, and then others needing to fill certain positions that we'll, we'll touch on in a bit as we get into other news items. Absolutely. Uh, Something we'll keep an eye on, but something else that's uh, really important that everyone should be aware of is, George, you flagged this for us here, whole whale, but that is about the Log4j software vulnerability. So it turns out that uh, a software that seems to run on almost all of the internet, or all of our devices, I should say, is a nonprofit open source software organization called Apache. Um, Now, Apache develops lots of different types of softwares. Among them is a tool called Log4j that's probably, that's primarily used in corporate, commercial, and potentially governmental settings. 
not super familiar with the specific software. It's pretty technical, but that nonprofit has announced a vulnerability that left unresolved poses a pretty glaring cybersecurity threat across global commercial, corporate, and government networks. Um, Microsoft has identified potential attempts to breach this by um, hackers, including potentially state-backed actors from Iran and China. Um, So the vulnerability is real. There are actors currently attempting to exploit it. Um, And this is a pretty significant vulnerability. Uh, I guess the for, for most of our audience, the takeaway here is if you have Apache software, update it. Um, if your computer has an update, update it. Keep everything as up-to-date as possible um, while the professional cybersecurity experts figure out next steps. But I'll pass it to you, George, because you're much more familiar uh, with this than I am. There was an interesting thread when I posted it on LinkedIn of people saying, oh, how does this compare to Y2K and these other pieces? Like, don't we hear about these exploits all the time? And, you know, is this just a bunch of hand-wringing? To that, I'd say the simplest reply I can give you is to paraphrase something, a statement from Jen Easterly, a director at the CISA, the Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency of the U.S. government, who went on to say in an interview that this is the most serious vulnerability she's seen in her decades-long career. This is a day zero exploit of some of the fundamental underpinnings of all of the web as it's been built on traditionally uh, through the Apache Foundation, by the way, an awesome nonprofit who, you know, does a lot of heavy lifting like many do does a lot of heavy lifting of some of this infrastructure. And frankly, you know, the, the level of vulnerability is kind of in its simplicity to exploit its pervasiveness in that it is frankly built into absolutely everything and the the potential severity here and difficulty to patch it because it is layered into so many libraries. Long story short, what do nonprofits have to worry about? Well, if you are dealing with large sets uh, of data, if you are on some of those uh, more concerned lists of folks that carry data, like your tech team is working full tilt right now to to patch and track all of the places where uh, this may be a potential security threat. What's more, if you're dependent potentially on some government uh, funding on proxies dependent on uh, government services, right? there's going to be a lot of municipalities municipalities under attack. And unfortunately, through the holidays, and it's, uh, it, it's scary. Um, and so keep that in mind if you are planning any sort of technical investment and in work right now that the, the general community is under high tax, high alert. Thank you for that succinct summary, George. All right, I can move us along into the other stories in our summary. And this is an interesting one out of Fast Company. And this was an article written by an entrepreneur who um, did some research and found that environmental nonprofits receive just 2% of charitable dollars and investigated even more. And it turns out that climate resiliency uh, organizations um, received just 0.4% of all charitable dollars in the United States. And this article uh, kind of gets at the crux of a bait right, debate right now in the philanthropy world 
um, regarding, uh, you know, effective altruism and, you know, uh, you know, the need to invest philanthropic dollars for larger scale, potentially future problems and all of these debates. But it's an interesting takeaway because I think it really challenges our assumptions about the nonprofit sector. I think in my brain, I think, okay, people in the environment are two of the biggest, you know, sectors, but it turns out that that's not actually true and that the overwhelming majority of these philanthropic dollars um, are going to that are going to environmental organizations are very, very small, um, which is interesting. I, I wonder what your takeaway from this is, George. Yeah, there's a narrative in here in this Fast Company article about effective altruism and the idea of putting your money to work in the places that are neg- neglected problems, systemic issues that uh, pose disproportionate existential threats to individuals. I, I think it's complicated. Uh, I think that, you know, if you expand, you know, just beyond nonprofits, uh, their investments in the sector, there's significant money in clean tech. There's significant money um, coming from the government for that type of support and in the private industry as well. I mean, the question mark, how do you classify, uh, I don't know, Tesla, right? Is that an environmental organization? Like, how is it working? So, you know, I don't know if this is fully representative of the entire market cap, <laughs> so to speak. And it's uh, it's it's dangerous. It's interesting. I won't say dangerous. It's interesting to sort of just show in terms of distribution of this type of look at charitable spend at, at how that gets sent. Keeping in mind, though, you're you're balancing that again in your mind. If you do it ignorant of the larger ecosystem of nonprofits saying, how is it only 2%? It should be at least half of the money we spend. And you're like, well, what about the arts? What about education? What about international? Like you, you play a weird game, but it's an interesting view and an interesting uh, uh, point, point of reference, I'd say. Yeah, George, I think that's a, a fair point. And I, I've been doing research on my own about this, trying to learn about uh, social impact index funds and effective altruism and all these mm-hmm, larger mm-hmm. trends in public perception. And in one interview um, I listened to, it was from a former ESG investor, and he was pretty critical of uh, ESG investing, but in terms of climate resilience, was adamant that the soul, not the soul, by far the most important determinant of climate resilience is government action and regulation, uh, which is an interesting component that, I don't know, uh, <laughs> kind of an aside to this story, but to your point, it's more multifaceted potentially um, than just looking at a percentage of uh, IRS tax-exempt organizations. Absolutely. And we did actually include that in the resources section of the nonprofit news feed messages in is ethical investing a scam. And that was a Fox conversation, you know, tacking onto that, the power of government is very clear. One stroke of a pen, suddenly you've got gas mileage rec- like uh, regulation. One stroke of the pen, suddenly you have uh, new expectations on carbon tax, which affect entire economies. No, no knocking, planting an extra 10,000 trees, but it's a, it's a whole different order of magnitude when you talk about the abilities of uh, even even cities to, to make these types of shifts. Absolutely. Moving into our next story, this comes from local affiliate 
thedenverchannel.com, um, ABC Channel 7 Denver. And this is about an article, how NFTs are helping charities and nonprofits fundraise. I wonder who picked this story, George. Um, but one of the headlines from this is that Macy's and the Make-A-Wish Foundation recently teamed up to sell NFTs of classic balloons from past Macy's Thanksgiving Day parades. Um, and it turns out that one of those balloons sold for tens of thousands of dollars. And I think this is great. Uh, another creative use of NFTs on the blockchain for folks unfamiliar, maybe they're joining us for the first time, you never know. Uh, NFTs are a way of, in essence, verifying ownership and authenticity of a uh, digital asset, in this case, an image. Um, but it seems that nonprofits are using them in creative ways to fundraise. So another cool example. You know, the story is going to play out a lot more, but I want you to abstract this and think about it for a second. And here's a quote. There is an insight that sometimes people like to have something in exchange for giving with philanthropy, says Janelle Holas, the VP of brand and marketing of Make-A-Wish. Oftentimes, there's something that can be a badge of honor for giving. So NFTs are a wonderful way for people to give back to organizations they care about while also having something that's really a token of their support, sense of pride, and a way that they really can show that they have given back. What's more with these NFTs, non-fungible tokens, into the contract and agreement of ownership is that if they sell it, 10% of that resale will go back to Make-A-Wish Foundation. So think about the upside here. Because Macy's agreed to make a few extra JPEGs and throw it up on a site, they opened up a whole new avenue of giving and revenue stream for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Crypto philanthropy. Very, very, very real. And we're just getting started. So that that's the hot take. <laughs> I like it. Your hot take is hot. NFTs are hot right now. So a great little story to include. Our next one is from the Salisbury Post at salisburypost.com. And this is an article that will follow up with a second article about how nonprofits, particularly in the foster care world, that system, are uh, really, really feeling the effects of the great resignation. That is the, the national trend of folks quitting their jobs um, looking for, for different types of work. And this is just one example of a nonprofit called Nazareth Child and Family Connection. Um, but it talks about how they are really, really suffering from their ability to help children in the foster care system because of staffing shortages. And this plays into larger narratives about employees um, potentially looking for different lines of work, potentially remote work, safer work. And unfortunately, perhaps predictably, uh, nonprofit organizations in the social services sector that really rely on person-to-person -person contact and services are feeling the brunt of this great resignation. So, George, I'll let you follow up with the narrative uh, you were trying to thread here. The number of jobs by total net nonprofits doesn't tell the full story. And what we're seeing here is that IRL type work in real life, doing the empathetic person to person, you can't sort of jump on a Zoom, but you have to meet with people to, to do this work, are experiencing the disproportionate weight of the great resignation, which is not equally distributed. 
what they're looking at is the desire of the current workforce more and more wanting to move remotely for reasons of fill in the blank flexibility of geographic flexibility, of time flexibility, of less risk of an ongoing pandemic that continues to mutate. And just to put it into numbers, you know, this is not an isolation, but just in Nazareth, they typically experience a 10% turnover rate per year, which, okay, you know, you can, you can count by that. That number increased to 25% in 2021, more than doubling. Like that's just devastating when you scale that up and, you know, Nick, you can maybe bring us to our our next post about another nonprofit uh, dealing with this as well. Yeah, George, uh, that's exactly right. This feeds into a narrative that we're seeing all over the country. Um, And this article is from the Houston Chronicle. And uh, the takeaway here is that, or the headline, I should say, is that the foster care crisis is, quote unquote, out of control in Texas with both children and staff in danger. And nonprofits are providing critical infrastructure, um, helping kids in the foster care system, an absolutely vital service. But because of staffing shortages and all these larger trends, their ability to help these kids is is really devastating. And it's having real-world impact. Um, And the article says, in the past two years, at least 65 Texas foster care operations have closed, um, over a third of which were forced to because of safety reasons. Um, So it's just the the trickle-down effect of this is dramatic. Um, And another thread is actually to go back to our podcast of last week, where we had a friend of Whole Whale, Dan Treglia, um, talking about uh, the, the impact of the pandemic and children losing a parent or caregiver directly plays into this. Um, Unfortunately, you potentially have more children entering the foster care system if they lose a single parent, for example. Um, But even more so, these social service organizations are on the front lines of helping children going through the most difficult couple years they've ever experienced. And yet again, uh, because of these larger trends, these organizations are just not able to handle the breadth and scale of the problem. Yeah, we're excited. We we mentioned that in the last news take, and we've got a deep dive interview with Dan coming up that Nick, you did. We'll probably be releasing that uh, a little bit after this. The number of children, I'll quote here from the article, the number of children in temporary lodgings went from 47 in August of 2020 to roughly 400 in this August. The average length of their stay increased from 3.6 nights to 18 nights. And that's according to state data. That is a massive increase for just one region. And again, where you see it happening in one place, you are seeing it happen in others. I think, yes, magnified by, frankly, the number of of, uh, parents that have uh, died in, in this pandemic. And then this is the one of those stories that you don't necessarily see as much, but we uh, we were looking around and I was like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely tied together. And also, you know, they talk about the burnout of staff that again are doing the in real life work in a great resignation moment. So there's a lot of pressure out there. So if you're, I don't know, if you're, if you're working out there, I mean, you're doing the amazing work. If you are able to give some money, look, find your, your local state uh, support for foster 
foster care uh, systems and, and children and consider uh, allocating some of your end of your funds to that, I'd say. George, how about a feel-good story? Please. <laughs> Please. All right. This is a good one. Um, so this comes from LancasterOnline.com. That is Lancaster. I'm going to say it both ways to cover my bases. <laughs> Lancaster, PA. And this is about a nonprofit called Vision Corps, which is an organization that works with folks who are visually impaired. And they're starting a program where um, people in uh, Pennsylvania can write letters to Santa in Braille and get a response back from the one and only Santa Claus in Braille, all the while helping both themselves and Santa Claus improve their Braille skills. And uh, this is just a cute, amazing, great little uh, project from this nonprofit um, to help folks uh, experience the thrill of writing a letter to Santa Claus uh, this holiday season. Uh, a cool, innovative, sweet project um, that you love to see helping kids um, who otherwise may struggle um, writing and uh, communicating via letter. Love to see this. It's great work. And you remember, you know, letters to Santa um, and helping with Braille skills is uh, excellent to see. All righty. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for the work this year. Those of you who don't know, Nick does an amazing job summarizing and working with me on bringing you nonprofit news, which, as we just realized, has cracked the uh, first page of Google Google search. So thanks for that as well. All right. Have a great holiday, Nick. Thank you, George. Have a great holiday yourself. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you all in the new year. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to Greg Thomas Music.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 